Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Colby Atchison, and I'm joined by Jason Barney and Patrick Egan. And today we're going to be talking about the Clapham sect. The Clapham sect, a famous group of Christians that lived in the late 18th and early 19th century. The most famous member, of course, was William Wilberforce. And today, specifically on our podcast, we're going to be thinking about the implications that a group like the Clapham sect might have for education today. So first, let's go over to Jason. And Jason, could you share a little bit about, broadly speaking, the need for students to be equipped and how the Clapham sect might be a key for unlocking how we might do that? Thanks, Colby. That's great. And, you know, this comes for us out of the fact that we have all worked for many years at Clapham School, which takes the Clapham sect as its namesake. And so this sort of vision that this Clapham circle around William Wilberforce had has been really influential and important for us. And I think inspiring about what a community could be to have all these Christians working together, involved in so many different Christian ministries and societies and causes to advance the work of Christ and to build the kingdom and have an influence in their culture. And I think that's really an important vision that speaks to the need of students to be equipped by more than just I guess what we traditionally call an education by, by more than just a school system or a set of texts and skills and, you know, content. It's, it's also about a culture, right? So much that happens in education that has the long-term impact on what type of person a student grows up to be has to do with the culture that they find themselves in. I think this points back to the ancient Greek concept of paideia and how in general, in many traditions before our modern era, education was viewed as enculturation, as the passing on of a tradition, not just job preparation or something like that, that we seem to be so taken with today. When I think of this, I always think of the, the phrase, it takes a village which some of my friends in the small group used to say often, but the idea here is that in order to raise a child, it doesn't just take two parents. There's so much more that a child needs in order to be fully brought up into the world. And that includes a whole, if you will, tribe, a village of people, a culture. And the way that I think the Clapham group, the Clapham circle, points this out is because for a few generations in England, you had so many families growing up involved in this active, vibrant Christian culture. 
so vibrant, so powerful, and with such skill that it had it absolutely transformed England and the world in many ways. Victorianism, as we know it, with its semi-Christian morality, was able to come about because of this Clapham group. They they made a tremendous impact. They brought the wonderful spirituality and vibrancy of the Great Awakening in Britain and brought that to the powers that be in England in their day and the ruling elite and spread that culture and had a tremendous impact on the world around them. I mean, obviously the most important thing was working for the abolition of the slave trade. But if you just think about what sort of shift it would take in the culture at large to get people who were completely okay and complicit with the slave trade and all the money that it brought them and turn them over to the belief where the vast majority of people saw the evils and had a negative reaction to the slave trade and slavery such that you, you completely changed the culture. I mean, and, and they did that because they had this amazing culture within themselves as a group that could spread to their children and could bring people in and, and operate. So those are my initial thoughts about that. Let me hand it over to Patrick. Talk to us about what you think. That whole notion of it taking a village reminds me of a book. I I know you've read this as well, Jason, because you referred to it. Dan Coyle has this book called The Talent Code. And one of the ideas he explores in that is just having these talent hotbeds where you have these people who come together to basically work a craft. It could be tennis players in Russia or futsal players in Brazil. And for some reason, they latch on to an idea that there's an environment that's conducive for them accumulating talent day by day. And they create this like-minded, highly talented and successful group of people. It's these talent hotbeds. And it seems to me that one of the things you're describing here is a talent hotbed that occurred in Victorian England when you had all of these people that just happened to be around each other, influencing one another, and it, it accumulated in this highly talented group of people that accomplished a tremendous amount because they were centered around some of these really core principles. So I wasn't sure, Jason, if you wanted to explore more this whole concept of a talent hotbed? Yeah, I really like the idea of seeing the Clapham group as sort of a a hotbed for Christian service, where they had really imbibed the, the sense that the gospel must make a difference in the world around. And Oberforce himself had this sense of calling to a transformation of morals in the world around him. And that was like the chief, that and the abolition of the slave trade, he said, were the two chief objects that God had put before him. And so he had that and as sort of the center of this circle of many different families in the Clapham area, there was this 
genuine sense of passion and calling that spread and that they raised their children into. So you can see many fathers and sons working together in this great work and carrying it on, being leaders of the societies that their fathers and grandfathers or grandmothers had founded down later generations. And just to give you a sense of some of those things too, to kind of illustrate the nature of it is of this hotbed for service, there were societies for, for missionaries. So missions was a major thing, but they also had Bible societies that they started. Societies for preventing cruelty to animals. Societies for prison reform. Or working against vice. They had groups that worked to spread education, to start schools in poor village areas that didn't really have a school. So Hannah Moore, for instance, her sister, were a major part in that. They went and started a number of different schools throughout some of the different counties of England that, again, didn't really have a functioning school. We might just kind of think and picture in our minds that Victorian England had this perfect system, but they were, you know, uncouth. There was no, there were no schools there, and they were spreading that along with the gospel and working very hard on that. They had all sorts of tracts and literature that Hannah Moore and others were writing for the benefit of the poorer or low middle class people of the day so that they might catch a glimmer of the gospel and of what a transformed Christian life might look like. And so I think many of these things, again, were, were just part of the culture of this group of families. I think that book, the uh, the Talent Code. One one key insight to that book as well is, and it's and it's somewhat unexpected, is that the word talent in the title. One thing you learn from that book is that talent itself is 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 not tied to genetics, but it is actually tied to a culture and formation. And I think of uh, the way Angela Duckworth puts it actually in her book Grit: Talent is overrated. Uh, so as important as talent is to, you know, doing great works of service for the Lord in one's life, um, talent itself needs to be cultivated. It needs to be shaped. And that occurs in a particular community within a particular culture. And I think about William Wilberforce's conversion. You know, he had really a rising career before him in the parliament and in politics in general, and, and he was very much uh, entranced by the culture of the day that was into the sort of vices that Jason was talking about, and particularly gambling and social clubs and all the different frills that comes with elite society. And, you know, something unexpected happened in his, his life. He went on a, a, a traveling vacation of sorts, and he invited an old school teacher of his, Isaac Milner, to come, on, come along with him. And through that experience, uh, Isaac Milner actually shared the gospel with Wilberforce, and, and he became a believer, especially after talking to John Newton as well, the former slave trader. And all of a sudden, William Wilberforce's life was transformed, and he began to see his skill set, his, exper- his experiences in Parliament, his position in society, um, not as an avenue for personal advancement, 
but as an avenue for service. And I think that really is what sets the Clapham Circle apart, is that they used their culture and their influence and their unique stations in life for service as opposed to personal advancement. I think there's a real, there's a real model there for us to pursue, even as we cultivate our own cultures in our schools today. What is our school aspiring to? What kinds of stories are we telling our students? What's our ethos? What are our examples that we're constantly putting before the imaginations of our students for them to live up to and live into? And I just love the whole story of the Clapham Circle. It's so inspiring. It makes me think about the fact that uh, we're really part of this interesting and flourishing movement. Uh, when you think about the classical Christian movement today in North America, there's a story there that unifies many of us. It may look different from school to school. Uh, some of the choices we might make in, in terms of what curriculum we use or how it gets applied might differ from school to school, but there's this sense in which there are lots of teachers, there are lots of schools and uh, some organizations as well that have really caught the, the bug for a kind of education that, that is different than what's on offer in the public schools. And uh, it's not just this responsive thing, like we're just gonna be reactionary to this modernist view of education. But it's saying we think there's something that was lost that needs to be reclaimed, promoted, and can be transformative of individuals and of society. And so there's this kinship, it feels like, in what we're experiencing in this educational renewal movement and, and what was happening in that Clapham Circle, because it was so many different people you know, there wasn't just one Christian tradition represented in that group. There wasn't just one conversion story. I think about the Thorntons, for instance, where they had their own conversion experiences of coming out of lifestyles that, that we might look back on and say, you know, that wasn't very Christian. And then I think in both of the Thorntons' cases, it was, uh, they, they kind of married into Christian conviction. They had wives that raised their game and force them to really bring their lives into conformity with the gospel. And for some reason, they, they caught a bug, didn't they, to really transform the church, transform society, and do some things that would make a meaningful impact in society. And so I think there's a model there for us to think about where it's not just about education, isn't it? It's about uh, this, this greater vision of, well, what happens when students are trained in understanding what's true, good, and beautiful, being transformed by that, defending and promoting those ideas in the wider culture. What kinds of institutions can be transformed? What kinds of things can be changed in our culture, enhanced or overturned? Because it's not like we don't have our own problems today <laughs> that uh, exist in our culture as they did back when the Clapham Circle was, was a, uh, attempting its work. One of the ways I think the Clapham Circle challenges us as educators is that I think it says we should do some sort of cultural analysis on ourselves, 
right? If you're a school leader, you should sit down and ask some really hard questions about what the school culture is actually like. What, what characterizes the, the school culture? What implicit messages are being sent by your events, by your traditions? What spirit is in the air amongst your students, your faculty? How are things being run? And again, what's the zeitgeist? What does that look like? If you're a teacher, think through, what's the culture like in my classroom? I've made all these decisions to set things up in this particular way, to use these procedures, to act and respond to students in these ways. What does that do? What does it feel like? What is the atmosphere, to use Charlotte Mason's term, in the classroom? So I think this sort of cultural analysis and the willingness for us as teachers and leaders to step back and do that on ourselves to become aware of things we might be taking for granted and then to be able to see maybe there are different ways of approaching things than what we're in the habit of doing. I think that's so crucial, so important. I read this um, book by a popular education writer a couple years ago called School Culture Revisited. And the writer's not a Christian, it's not a classical education book or anything. But there are a lot of great questions that he had in there for this idea of what, what is this culture like in your school? How do people respond to change, to new ideas? All sorts of questions in there. Um, so I, I'd point you to something like that, but use some sort of research, resource or make up your own way of conducting a kind of culture audit on your school or your classroom or your home atmosphere, if you're a home educator. What are the intangibles? How do we do things just standardly without even thinking about it? And how do we relate habitually, again, without even thinking about it or reflecting on it? Step back, take those times to look at it and think through maybe a, there's a different way that would be more in line with our, our goals, our convictions, our heart, our vision for what these students might be, how they might act and relate in the world, how they might serve as Christians. I wanna transition here a little bit and, and think about the purpose of education and think about specifically here how the Clapham Circle might help us think about this purpose. Because I think there is this, this spirit and passion in the classical education movement that education ought to be about you know, purely the pursuit of wisdom and about the love of knowledge and the contemplation of wisdom and knowledge and that any pragmatic ends or goals in education ought to be shunned because, oh, that's what, that's the problem that modern education led us to in the first place, this over-pragmatization of education, this focus on utilitarianism and college and career readiness. And as classical educators, we just need to avoid all of that and focus on the contemplation of knowledge. I'm curious uh, what your guys' thoughts are on that, on that spirit and how the Clapham Circle might offer us perhaps a corrective or even middle way to this question. Patrick, do you want to start for us? Yeah, the, there's two ends of a spectrum that 
we need to avoid. And, and one is treating education as though there's just hoops to jump through. Tick the box, complete all of the graduation requirements, and you're good to go. You're a well-educated person. That's an aspect of education that I think we're constantly pushing against. We, we want to inspire education or <laughs> educationers, uh, teachers, uh, educators to really do something more than just the mere content, right? But there's, a, there's another end of the spectrum where all we are is just highfalutin, we're ivory tower, we're always contemplating great ideas, but never really putting feet to those ideas. And so we can create these really inspiring environments where we're connecting students to their spiritual lives, to ideals, giving, giving them a sense of moral fortitude, but never really giving them those opportunities to go out and serve. And so service is a really important idea for us to contemplate. What are ways in which our, our students can really enact the things that they're learning? You know, I think finding partnerships with area ministries, church ministries, they could be any number of, of organizations where you could find ways to partner with them where your students can get actively involved in some kind of service. Another idea that I've enjoyed uh, doing is bringing in people from the service sector. Kind of like you would have a business person come in and talk about their entrepreneurial ideas, and you'd want to have a Steve Jobs there that would say, you know, I, I started with nothing and I created an entire new industry. Well, there are people like that who, who are in the service sector, and they find problems and they use that same entrepreneurial spirit to try to solve those problems. This is something we see with the Clapham sect, that they would identify issues and they would just try to creatively solve those things. What are the resources we could bring to bear? How can we uh, mobilize volunteers to go get that? How can we campaign? How can we become activists in this arena? And I think bringing before our students people who are those lightning rod kinds of people who've actually created new organizations or new approaches to service are great to bring before students so that they can learn that there are people out there doing that kind of work to inspire them to potentially be places they could serve now or in the future. It's funny how these sorts of questions push us into a false dichotomy, I think, between the life of the mind and the life of action. You know, I, I think of our image of the late Middle Ages and the ivory tower intellectual focus of, you know, so much philosophy. And, you know, you could th think of or picture Thomas Aquinas in his study, just writing volume after volume of his Summa Theologica, and that being the thing he does is just think. And there was this wonderful, in the classical tradition, sense of the value of the contemplative life. You know, it's something that Aristotle praises as the ultimate in producing happiness. And for Aristotle, of course, that 
was a part of his picture of the gods because part of why he argues for the contemplative life being the ultimate in happiness is because it's like the gods who are not active but just watch and contemplate everything that goes on in, in the world. So he's got this, I, I don't know, I, I guess we would call it deist sense. And that informs his sense that the contemplative life is the, the highest good. And I think that's something that, unfortunately, we, we kind of tend toward or fall into in the classical school world in general, because we want to counter utilitarianism, this sort of modern sense that it's all about action in the world and what your, your students are actually going to be doing with their lives. And so we want to say the life of the mind is super important. And that's right. But again, I think it's a false dichotomy. And potentially as Christians, we get pushed into foul territory when we start thinking that way. William Wilberforce wrote this book called A Practical View of Christianity. The actual title's much longer, but that's what it's normally published in. Those early Victorians just loved their long titles. It's like, this is a fun sentence. But his, his idea in A Practical View of Christianity was that so many Christians of his day were nominal. They didn't really take their faith seriously and live it out practically in their lives. And so that's what he's addressing. And I think what we need to take on board as Christian educators is that, yes, the life of the mind is important, but it's always fused with the body and with action. And ultimately, the classical tradition as a whole was holistic in this way. It's not just about what we think, but also about what we do. And those are best fused together actively in a sort of practical wisdom to commend Aristotle's thinking again and not just put him in a box. This is really important. It's, it matters what students are going to do after our educational experience. And we want to equip them for that. We, we want to equip them for that. It's not just about the love of learning for its own sake. Because of something else that Wilberforce says, in a world such as ours, with so many problems and pain and so much suffering, with so many people in need of the gospel, and in need of transformation, how can we do anything but act, right? And I, I, I'm, you know, phrasing, rephrasing one of his quotations, but I think that's so compelling, that idea that, you know, we live in a world that requires action. That's not to say that there aren't legitimately called scholars out there who will spend their life acting through words and through writing and through research. That's great. And it's an important calling. And many of us as teachers feel that sort of, the importance of that sort of calling. But there, that's not everyone. That's not every Christian. And that's not most of our students. So we need to educate them for the Christian life to which God is calling them. Yeah, I like son the uh, activity of the Christian life. Actually, uh, when William Wilberforce and Henry Thornton, his good friend, were kind of reflecting on their, you know, decades-long battle to abolish the slave trade, Wilberforce actually looked at Thornton and said, so, Henry, what should we abolish next? There was this sense that even after that decades-long battle, uh, their work wasn't quite finished because God well, they had more years in front of them, and they wanted to use those years for the glory of God and 
and service to the world. And there's something really inspiring about that. And, you know, as classical educators, although we want to be careful about falling into this careerist method or model of education where we're so focused on college acceptance and getting into that career and to that on-ramp for a certain level of income, we want to be careful about that. On the other hand, we do want to think carefully about vocation and look at each of our students as creatures made in the image of God with unique passions and gifts and skill sets and desires and goals. And we do want to help shepherd that, that talent, if you will, that potential in a way that really honors their vocation. Uh, another word for vocation is calling. Actually, think back to Martin Luther and in his day, back in the 16th century in the German, the, ver the word vocation was pretty much confined for a priestly calling. There really wasn't a sense that God would, would have any sort of real substantial calling into quote-unquote secular careers. To be in a vocation was to be in ministry. And that was a, an area where Luther really transformed that understanding of vocation to mean more of what it means today, which is a calling by God into all sorts of particular areas and, and industries, and not only industries and professions, but also into different stations uh, that we find ourselves in life, you know, as, as fathers, as, as husbands, as, as members in churches, as members in our, in our cities and towns and, and neighborhoods, each of those positions that we have, those stations, we can view as, as vocations. And, and therefore, we can then think about how to equip ourselves and our students for those future vocations. See, that takes me to an area that I've, been developing over the past ooh, maybe 10 years, which is college counseling. And I don't know that my approach is particularly unique, but, but it definitely feels like it's counter to a lot of people's ideas about how to do college counseling well. And that is not beginning with college requirements, the number of credits or GPA or SAT score that you need to get into a college. The college entrance game is one where the student feels like they need to live up to certain standards in order to get into a college, to get funding, and that just keeps going in that careerist mindset. Well, what do I need to do to get into this job or this field? And, and so you're constantly trying to conform yourself to all of these standards that are out there. And so what I've done is flip the game for, for my students. I'm talking with them about, you know, where do you see God taking you? What kinds of convictions do you have? Where would you want to go in your life? And the college is merely there to serve you in getting to that place, a place that's usually centered around service, around your relationship with God and ways in which you see God directing you, even if it's an imperfect picture at this point. And what that does is it starts to frame it as, I'm not trying to live up to the college, but the college is there to help me accomplish something greater than just what the college is. 
And I think that transforms the college counseling experience because now you're genuinely working life on life with this student of really helping them map out their future and situating college within that. It's only one component of that. And it might not be the only component of that. It might not be actually the best pathway for you to get to where you need to go. And so we can explore military or we can explore gap year experiences and, and alternatives that may be cheaper or, or just fundamentally different than what, what the cultural expectation is for your college experience. And I think that's, that's fundamentally based in this whole idea that uh, it's not just about a career, it's about a calling, the, the voco, the call of God's um, direction in your life. That's a really practical way that uh, some of our uh, school administrators or, or teachers can think about uh, that whole component of high school. There's another way that I think this um, practical emphasis can be defended from a classical tradition perspective. And that is actually in terms of the liberal arts. When we think about the liberal arts, a lot of our talk about it has to do with it, the liberal arts being the tools of learning, the tools with which to justify knowledge in the philosophy section. So that's prepping primarily scholars for the ongoing work of learning or establishing new knowledge in the cutting edge of fields. But I think there's actually at the root of many of the disciplines of the liberal arts, there's a very simple professional and practical aspect to them. You just think about grammar, for instance, and the training in reading and writing, how that would be necessary or used in, if you will, careers and vocations in people's lives that it kind of grew out of the necessity of being able to read and write contracts, the role of a scribe. These were important things that were part of why the liberal arts became the liberal arts. We could use astronomy as another example. If you're a free man potentially needing to lead troops in the ancient world, you need to be able to recognize the stars and know which direction you're going. When you go outside of the village in which you were born, you need to be able, somebody needs to be able to direct the troops and to look at charts and be able to know which direction we're going. So we could think about astronomy as this long developed discipline throughout the classical era and middle ages that was just about kind of theoretical ideas about the stars and their mapping and order and how they move. But there's also this practical down to earth, well, down to earth, maybe that's a, a <laughs> anti-pun there, reality of if you're leading others, you need to do this. And the same thing is true of rhetoric, right? Rhetoric wasn't just <laughs> theoretical. Rhetoric was all about how to actually move people and persuade them to do what you needed to do as a leader in the ancient world. There's this long section in Plato about the usefulness of geometry for a military commander in terms of like sending troops in different directions. You have to be able to think geometrically 
in order to make those sorts of decisions, in order to, I don't know, throw spears, send ballistas. You get the point, right? These, um, these disciplines started in this very practical art way. They were practical skills. Yes, there is a deeper and a broader discipline that grows out of them that you can discover all sorts of knowledge about the world through, and that's valuable in and of itself. Like, don't hear us endorsing utilitarianism. It's valuable in and of itself to continue to learn. They are about a lifelong love of learning, but they're also very practical for vocation, for career, for the ability to serve others in ways that society needs. Your community around you needs you to be able to do these things. That's why we're training students to be able to do them, because they're legitimate, necessary, important functions for the flourishing of human communities for the building up of a culture that hopefully is God glorifying, God honoring, that cares for the most vulnerable among us. These are important practical skills. Uh, one, one example in my own life that really fits what Jason just described is a, there's an elder at my church actually, and he's a, an independent contractor and he owns his own business. And so you might think, oh, blue collar worker, you know, doesn't have much of a cultivated mind, perhaps. But you talked to this man, and he actually went to a Christian liberal arts college. And to just hear the vitality in his mind, even 20 years after he went to college, is so incredible and inspiring. You know, he's reading all sorts of different books and all sorts of different disciplines from psychology to biblical and he very much uh, even as he does his day-to-day job as an independent contractor and engaged in manual labor has maintained that life of the mind through his training in the liberal arts that Jason was talking about so the, the liberal arts really do yes they prepare you for that for the vocation for that calling from God how you will go serving him in society, but also it prepares you to have that life of the mind that can occur no matter what profession you're in. Well, that wraps up our time today. Thank you for joining us as we've had this really enlightening conversation about Clapham Circle and the ways they might serve to inspire us in the sort of education that we offer our students today. Thank you for tuning in uh, to hear us here at Educational Renaissance. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn as you like. We also have uh, weekly blogs that come out on our website, www.educationalrenaissance.com. And there you can also sign up for our email uh, list. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day.